The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. pretend we are on the air. Sure, go ahead. Got any good jokes for us, sir? <laughs> no, I'm going to pretend we're on the air. <laughs> no, believe me, when you're, in, when you're in a spacecraft, you've got to assume that you're on air. The number of people who have said things thinking they weren't on air, it goes to the world. It's just not nice. <laughs> when you're in a spaceship, the assumption is... Every noise, every noise you make of every kind is going to get out. So, anyway, I'm on air. Okay. You sure are. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll start in just another minute. Um, I don't understand why there's no music playing, but uh, because we, we still have another two minutes to uh, show time. So, I there's see. some music. But we'll do her anyway, sir. Uh, so, well, Tyler and Paul, you kind of gave me a couple sent a sentence or two of introduction. Sure. Uh, it's an honor to meet you, Dr. Musgrave. Sorry, sorry. Um, I'm Tyler, and I'm uh, yeah. like Paul. Um, I'm a graduate student at Stanford in aerospace. And um, terrific. Oh yeah, thank you. And um, Brent is uh, my uncle, and so that's kind of the connection there. And um, when he said that he was having you as a guest, I thought that'd be it would be an honor to meet you, so I, that's kind of uh, why we wanted to come on and, and, and talk to you for a bit. Yeah, any particular uh, major, any particular uh, industry that you're aiming for? Um, I'm, I yeah. work in kind of, uh, navigation and GPS. and so oh, probably me. Navigation and GPS. Particularly yeah, so GPS, or are you into some, any kind of non-GPS, if it's RF or IMUs or that stuff? or. Uh, it's mostly GPS stuff. Uh, our okay, lab. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, and uh, I'll pass it along to Paul. Good afternoon, Story. Uh, my hey. name is Tarantino, and uh, I echo what Tyler was saying about this being an honor to meet you and speak with you. Um, I too am a graduate student at Stanford University, and yeah. in the aerospace department. And my concentration lies mostly in the space environment, um, and kind of how satellites. The Excuse space me? environment? Right, like how yeah. um, spacecraft are uh, influenced by space weather and micrometeoroid impacts, things like that. Yeah, that's gorgeous. That's fun stuff, yeah. Complicated, too. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff going on, yeah. 
you guys sure. ready to go? I'm going to start the show. Sure. Okay. Sure. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and folks, I am honored tonight. You know, doing this show, I get to speak with amazing people from all walks of life all over the world. Jane Goodall's been on the show, Ted Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, Nobel Peace Laureates. Tonight, we have somebody of the same elk, folks, and he is an inspiration to all he speaks to and speaks with. One Franklin Story Musgrave is our guest tonight. And let me just read a little bit about his bio. Are you ready for this? He's an American physician. He is a retired NASA astronaut. I he, did not retire. Oh, that's what it says here. I apologize. I know. No, and I'm already making fun. <laughs> I did not retire. I left. Okay, you got fed up and just, you see, folks, this is where we're going to go with Night Fright. No, I'm working 80 hours at the age of 80 now, so it's hardly retirement. No kidding. 80 hours a day. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's difficult. That's a time warp. It's per week. How do you do it? How do you maintain that pace? Because life is fun. Right on. It's fun. It's hard not to, you know, and if it ain't fun, get another life. I like that attitude already. In 1996, he became only the second astronaut to achieve. Are you ready for this? Not one space flight, two, three, four. No, Mr. Musgrave, six space flights. And he's the foremost formally educated astronaut with seven academic degrees. Now, we are also joined tonight by two students. I shouldn't call them students, two young men from. Um, aerospace okay. Stanford, yes, sir. It's okay to be a student. I'm a student. The world. That's the first thing I am. Story Musgrave, student, then artist, then designer, then engineer. So I start with student. What is your favorite subject, sir? Oh my goodness. Well, it's hard to say. I'm into a lot of domains, a huge number of domains. I do teach design, though, so I'm a professor at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. So I teach uh, I teach personal development, professional development. I teach design, so I got to put that up top of the list right now, I guess. Okay, well, we're going to get into that right away. Tyler Reed is a graduate student of the GPS Lab in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Stanford University. He's joined by Paul Tarantino, and he's a graduate student in the Space Environment and Satellite Systems Lab in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, also at Stanford University. Both Paul and Tyler are alumni of the International Space University. Now, let's get into this, folks. Now, Contact in the Desert is a conference that's coming up from May 29th to May 31st, 2015. It's taking place at Joshua Tree. It is a conference based on UFOs. It is a conference based on knowledge. While we're on the subject of contact in the desert, the people going there are primarily made up of UFO researchers. Is there something in your background that leads you to believe that we are not alone in the universe? Well, I don't think it's my background. I just think it's all observations of science and technology we got out there. There's trillions. It ain't billions, it's trillions. And so it is how many 
Now, friendly planets are to life and the power of life to arise or the power of life to be moved, you know, with meteoroids and that kind of stuff. So it's everywhere out there. And I think there's billions. If a planet gets, gets its act together, if a planet, that advanced evolutionary string in every planet, of course, as evolution happens, you are going to get complexity arising and you are going to get that advanced evolutionary string, I call it, increasing complexity and hopefully increasing intelligence and all. If they get their act together now where they are at peace with themselves and at peace with the other creatures of the world and with sustainable behavior, they can go on for billions of years. Now, if you look at our technology, starting with the Industrial Revolution or the Italian Renaissance, whenever you want to say that we start to get really get into stuff, so that's three, four, five hundred years. If you look at a planet in which the um, advanced evolutionary string has had one billion years to develop its technology, they are also doing star travel too. Mm. And so I have no evidence, but I would. If I, you know, if I'm in Las Vegas, I won't put some money down. There's billions, there's billions of star, of, of planets that are doing star travel. That's how big this place is. It's massive. Now, when you're up there alone, I shouldn't say alone. You have other people, but when you're doing an no, you can be alone. You can be alone if so? you want. You're floating so? in the dark. Uh, you're just floating in the dark. Everyone else sleeping. You're floating in the dark, and you don't know where anything is. And then you you really feel, and it's a delicious feeling. Uh, to have that kind of silence, you know, and that kind of just contemplative, reflective kind of state. Well, tell us about that experience. Where do you go in your head when a moment like that takes place? Um, oh, it's kind of a, it's just kind of a meditative kind of just thinking about things. You have a silent mind. It's quiet. So, because, you know, hardly any sensory input at all. You're not in contact with anything. You don't know where anything is. So it's just kind of a, it's kind of a just very relaxed, very peaceful just a really good conduce state. I like to do night passes, so I love the dark, and I love to see what you can see at night, you know. And so you get 35 minutes a night every every rev, 35, 40 minutes a night. When you're in the window, just going through the stars, you know, so you put your nose right on the window, not quite because you don't want dirty the window. You put your nose on the window and, uh, and just watch the world and uh, the stars go by. And so that's like you're just floating around out there, and you can do a 360 the way the seals do. And you're just floating out there in the stars. What is the difference between being inside the spacecraft, and I know you've done an EVA, and being outside, uh, for example, when you were on the Canada arm? Yeah. I don't think it's major, Brent. I don't think it's, okay. I don't think it's major. It's a beautiful view when you're 60 feet up on, on, on that arm up out of the bay and out of the shuttle. That 60 feet is almost more than the 370 miles you are above Earth. <laughs> you're afraid you're going to fall. You're afraid you're going to fall into the payload bay. I don't find it that much radically different in terms of the things we're talking about now. It's really nice to be working out there, but in terms of what you can see and what you can feel and all the rest, now, you certainly have a much better view because your visor is not 360, but your visor is approaching 180 degrees. But also, you can maneuver your body, see. 
Now, when you're in the space station or when you're in the shuttle, you're confined to the window views based on the attitude of the spaceship. And so you are very heavily confined in terms of the direction you can see. Whereas if you're doing a spacewalk and you're well, well away from the shuttle, like riding on a robotic arm, you do have a almost a 180-degree visor to turn your head inside the helmet. But also, if you want to look behind you, you just turn your body around and look behind you. So you certainly, in terms of the, the direction of your viewing, it's much richer than inside the spacecraft. And I guess when you're hanging 60 feet above the spacecraft on the Canada arm, you kind of hope the Canadians weren't playing hockey that night and they knew what they were doing <laughs> making that damn arm. <laughs> what do you think about all that stuff? Story, is there fear, was there fear at all? when you were sitting on top of that giant spaceship about to take off, that moment of there's no turning well, back? I, I don't know if it's fear, but it's an abhorrence of risk, and I don't like the risk. And, you know, I was angry. I was angry about the shuttle. Yes, sir. I don't like that. I don't like that risk. I'm not a risk taker. When you I see you're too angry many people die. I'm a Marine, sir. I'm a Marine. I'm a Marine in Korea. Thank you for your service. Uh, I'm a teenage Marine, you know, 17. And I've been flying 18,000 hours, and I started with the Marines, and I saw stuff. And so I'm a professional, and I was also Air Force later on, 30 years with NASA. More time in the vacuum, more time at vacuum in the vacuum chambers than anyone in history, all that kind of stuff. But I'm a professional, Brent and, uh, yes, and uh, Paul and Tyler. So I like to control the risk. I want to control the risk to save my own butt, and I also want to control the risk because programmatically it really hurts when you have a catastrophe. It hurts the program. It hurts the agency. The shuttle was much more risk than I tolerate, but I belong in space. I'm good in space, so I kept doing it. I have made the decision, you know, months and years earlier, this is the business I'm in, and I have to do the risk even though I don't like it. And so when you talk about fear, well, it's a kind of fear, but it's different. It's a professional that doesn't want risk and is forced into doing risk. But I'll give you one example of intellectualization of risk and intellectualization of fear. Yes, sir. Uh, one, one example that really comes to mind is climbing the Sydney Harbor Bridge. So you've all seen that, the Sydney Harbor Bridge. It's, it's iconographic for Australia, you know, mm -hmm. the bridge. Well, they have, a, they have a walk. You climb up the bridge, and there's no railing. There's nothing between you and 400 feet to the water. But, uh, but you've got a harness on, you've got a ring on the harness, and you're on a railing. No one in history out of hundreds of thousands has ever been hurt climbing the bridge. Okay, I don't care if I'm hanging out there and there's no railing. There's nothing between me and a 400-foot drop to the water. You can't scare me, and I cannot be afraid. Because I got the statistics in my head. And no injury and hundreds of thousands of climbers. Okay, that's fine. But there's other ones. You see these people who are paralyzed. They get up there and they can't walk. They're absolutely paralyzed. And someone has to come and get them off. But you can't tell them there is zero risk and there is zero reason to be afraid here. But that's what I call intellectualization of, uh, of risk. Doug Osheroff was on the show. He won the Nobel Physics Prize, and he was also on the Columbia board investigating the accident. Yeah. Are you aware of, of his findings, sir? 
I'm aware of the whole funding. I spent a whole day with the Gaming Commission. They had me for the whole day to talk about Columbia and investigate certain aspects of it. When, when blocks of ice and foam are coming off and they are doing damage and you don't deal with that, okay, you can call it narcissism, you can call it something else. Maybe narcissism is part of the, the uh, not paying attention to deviant behavior. Now, deviant behavior is deviant behavior. And you normalize that because you got away with it. Now, Challenger, of course, was, was massive negligence and massive just... Uh, we were getting the deviant behavior in those O-rings all along the line. We did nothing about it. So deviant behavior means, well, something went wrong, but you didn't get hurt, and you did it again. And something was wrong again, and you didn't get hurt. So what you're doing is playing Russian roulette, and you keep squeezing the trigger. And you think things are getting better. They're not. They're not getting better at all. You are heading to the point where you got a bullet. It's called normalization of deviance, and the cause of that can be can be cultural problems. With the shuttle program, it was we thought we'd built a bus, and we kept telling ourselves that. Even before the Challenger accident, we said the odds are 1 in 100,000. And even when the Congress asked us, and even after the accident, the head engineer for NASA said, well, we found a data point. But he still said it's 1 in 100,000. That means you fly every day for 300 years without an accident. Okay, those people are not in touch. When you're an organization that says you can fly the shuttle um, every single day for 300 years and not have an accident, the culture is not in touch with the real world. Is your input valued to these people, or do they just kind of poo-poo it? No. No, the Gaming Commission, no. Their eyes were this big and their mouth was hanging open. They knew I nailed it. So, no, people listen to me, but I think differently, so... I think differently, so I'm a, I'm a multiple domain thinker. So I'm, I'm I have I work about eight or ten different domains simultaneously, and I, and I synergize, I synthesize between different disciplines and to get a different answer. So I get a different answer by you know by working different disciplines and the way they play together, and I get I get an answer because I went bring one domain into the solution, a different domain than the one that existed. Right, sir. You know, we were just talking about Doug Osheroff, and he's from Stanford University as well. And I'd like to go back to my two co-hosts tonight, and that's Tyler Reed from Stanford University and Paul Tarantino, also from Stanford University. Both are in aerospace, by the way. And I'd like to uh, open the floor to Tyler to ask a question, and then we'll get a question um, by, uh, by Paul as well. Tyler, do you have a question for uh, Story? Uh, certainly. Um, I was wondering what you thought the space program would look like in 10 or 20 years from now, and, and who might be the astronauts then? What's it going to look like 30 years from now? Yeah. Is that? I can't tell. Okay. I can't tell. I can't tell because there is no vision. There is no direction. So we don't have a Mars program. We don't have an asteroid program. We don't have a moon program in terms of human flight. Those programs simply don't exist. And you say, Story, it's a radical statement. Well, is it? In 2014, 2015, and 2016, the congressional budget, how many dollars were allocated to Mars, to asteroid, or to the moon? It's called zero, none. Those programs don't exist. So until 
And NASA needs to have the vision. The vision, the vision should not come from administration or Congress. The vision needs to be developed, developed by NASA by really visionary people like Dr. Von Braun that I knew very well and other people like that, science fiction people, dreamers and that. NASA needs to come up with a great long-term vision with guaranteed support and then give that vision to the public and let the public you know, uh, influence the Congress to get the job done. Right now, there is zero long-term vision. There is nothing in the future except, you know, to keep Space Station alive, and they're talking 2025 now. Of course, we've got the Webb Telescope. we got some hardware. we got some hardware coming down the line. But there is no long-term vision even five years from now. And so I cannot tell you where it's going. I can tell you where I'd like to go, but where I would like to go is not relevant. Can you tell us where you'd like to go? <laughs> where we should have gone to? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Where I'd have gone is, I think, Space Station, it, it's doing something, but it's a, it was a massive uh, strategic error. For the cost of Space Station, including the transportation up and down to it, we could have had... 300 Voyager-class satellites throughout the entire solar system. Now, the Voyagers are a first-class, powerful satellite. They have left the solar system. They've been out there for 35 years. They're totally functional. I'm saying, for the cost of the space station, that the average person doesn't know what we're doing there. You today... I could go on your monitor and you could call up one of 300 multimedia channels and you could have had landers on every planet and every moon of every planet in the entire solar system and have had sample returns from all the planets. That's what we gave up. Now, that is total exploration. It is total understanding of our entire solar system. If you think of 300 voyagers... So I'm not talking uh, the cost of space station in money terms. Yes, sir. I'm talking about what we lost in terms of exploration if we'd only reached out a little further. Do geopolitics play a lot in the decisions that are made at NASA, sir? Well, NASA doesn't make decisions anymore. That's the trouble. They don't have a vision. They don't make decisions. Hmm. What they do now is wherever the money comes from, the administration and particularly the Congress, money doesn't come from the administration, it comes from Congress, They, where the money comes from, they look to the decisions to be made there. And so they are making the decision. But there is no visionary, there is no visionary set of people and visionary group who are true visionaries that are laying out the future path. Sir, was Kennedy a visionary? I just want to quote something he, he well, actually, Ted Sorensen wrote for him, and that is, We, we choose, choose to go, to, go to, the to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because, because that, that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. Is that a visionary speaking? Uh, sure, that's it, man. That's it. But, um, 
But that's it. But there is a difficulty in that, you know, because international competition also drove that. So an international competition to get to the moon first. And so it's a little misappropriation of your motivation to do spaceflight. Spaceflight is for exploration. It's for history. It's for philosophy. It's for fun. It's for excitement. Spaceflight should never be appropriated to compete with other countries. We should be collaborating. Paul, would you have a question for story? Uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. Story, I'm curious, what was it like to be selected during the Apollo era? And kind of like as a second question, uh, did you have any hopes to go to the moon? Yeah, I had no hopes to go to the moon. Uh, you need to send a geologist. And so uh, I was a trauma surgeon, you know, and I was a physiologist. Well, I had computers and math and stuff, too. But you really wanted to send a planetary uh, a planetary kind of scientist or a geologist. That's a person you need to send to the moon. Man, I just adored getting there a couple of years before our power flew because I saw the spirit. I saw the spirit. I saw the can-do spirit. Man, I just saw we're going to get there. We we are going to get there. And I saw everyone pulling together with that, that incredible going to the moon spirit. It formed up all the communication channel. It made people just have the passion, you know, the passion for getting on with a job and going. Even the Apollo fire, well, it, it hurt. It hurt, but it didn't slow us down. So I joined the year the Paul fired. It hurt, but it didn't slow us down. And the president stayed behind us too. You got to, you got to, you got to thank our president, Candy. He stayed behind us the whole way. He was involved. Now he didn't just tell us to go. He was personally involved in the process. He went to all the centers. He talked to people. And uh, the fire, yes, terrible. But um, you know that, of course, uh, fire came after his death. But he was, uh, you know, he was with us all the way. Tyler, would you have a follow-up question to the one you asked before? Um, yeah, so you mentioned, you know, visionaries like Von Braun, which, you know, really is an inspiration to all of us in aerospace. How do you see someone like Elon Musk, you know, maybe it, would you consider him a visionary for the future? And do you see him, you know, bringing some stuff, new things to the table? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. But it's it's um, what is called private, and they're not private. Uh, Boeing's private. North American Aviation is private. They're all private. We call them private. I don't know what private means. They're now taking billions of dollars of government money. And so, um, you know, it's a very complicated process. We are developing five vehicles to go to low-Earth orbit. And do we need five vehicles to do that? So what I'm saying is, we need a, a central, long-term vision that will manage all the resources and all the people and all the efforts we have. There is no long-term vision, sir, absolutely none. We are developing five vehicles to get to low-Earth orbit. We don't belong in low-Earth orbit. We need to go further out. And so it's a complicated process when you're when you're doing that and I don't know what it means now Orion is not a deep space vehicle it's a capsule you're not going to go to Mars in a can Orion is not a deep space vehicle Apollo's deep space just as deep space as Orion is it's just a rocket it rides on how far you want to push it and so and the question is Orion you know it's 30,000 pounds are you going to take 30,000 pounds of dead weight to Mars and back 
it can't land on Mars. It's not that kind of thing. Now, Ryan being a great lunar vehicle, yeah. So I'm just talking about the total, uh, the total long-term vision. The, you know, where does Ellen fit in that? Where does CST-100, the Boeing vehicle, fit? Where does, where does the Dream Chaser, uh, where does it fit in this thing? Where does oral sciences fit in this? Where does all these things fit? Now, those people like Ellen are doing their own thing. They're doing things as they see it ought to be done, and they're doing their own thing, and they want government money to do their thing. Well, you know, you do get the entrepreneurial spirit, and you do get a different way of doing things. You know, but do you need five different ways to get to low Earth orbit? Is that reasonable? Probably not. <laughs> Ty, do you have other questions? So you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? How do how does SpaceX and they're they're darn good? How do they fit in the long term vision for the country? Paul, do you have a follow up question? Uh, and, uh, I can. I'm kind you of. Know, I'll, I'll just bit, say one know. more thing. Orbital Science is the last vehicle they lost. Uh, they are a private company, and they're supposed to push us into the future with advanced kind of things. They lost that vehicle, and they were flying um, refurbished Russian engines from the 1960s. Now, sir, that is not advanced space flight. That is not private entrepreneurial. They were flying 60s refurbished engines from Russia, and they were flying a stage, a first stage built in Ukraine. Now, is that where we need to be? And between now and 2020, 56% of getting to orbit will be done on refurbished Russian engines. Okay, I'm not happy with that, sir. Is that the vision for America? We got the best rocket company. It's called North American Rocketdyne. Saturn's never failed. They were the best and most powerful rockets even to date ever produced. We know we are the best rocket company in the world. We know how to do that. We've always done it. Between now and 2020, in this private enterprise world, in this no-vision world, 56% engines are going to take it to space are refurbished Russian engines. I am not happy with that. Sorry to interrupt. Paul, are you aware of uh, the Saturn V rockets uh, versus the Russian-made rockets? And what's your opinion? Um, well, I, I agree with what the story's saying, um, uh, mainly, I, I, I guess that's, that's, I was trying to switch gears a little bit, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what he's saying. It's not much of an improvement, obviously, and you can't really argue with that. Okay. Now, Paul, you're studying micro, small little microns that would have the potential of, I, I guess causing a lot of damage to spacesuits if somebody's doing an EBA, is that correct? Uh, we more focus on um, like satellite operations in general, not specifically, uh, we don't look at just um, spacecraft or spacesuit design. Uh, what we look at is um, the plasma produced by these micrometeoroids impacting on satellites, creating what we believe to be an RF a wave that travels, kind of like crawls on the surface of the spacecraft, propagates into the bus, and um, like damages electronic uh, vulnerable components. And we want to mitigate by understanding the phenomenon that's causing it. So that's kind of where our research is 
is selling. That's a that's pretty advanced. Uh, that's that's pretty deep science you're getting into there. But you know, I've seen that plasma. I've seen that plasma creep and crawl all over the shuttle. Really? It, or it creeps and crawls. Yeah. It it's uh it glows and it moves. You know, it creeps and crawls. Well, you hold on, shuttle is lit up. If you spend, if you do enough night passes where you really get dark adapted, especially if you have image intensifying camera, I got pictures of this, this fire, this plasma just creeping and crawling all over the place. Now, I was the first person in history to observe the plasma coming home on, uh, on SDS 80. I had no, no responsibilities. And I stood up during the reentry looking out the overhead window. And I saw I was the first person to witness the plasma and to photograph it, too. Now, how dangerous is this story when you're up in space? Can it mean the difference between life support and non-life support? Can it affect everything? We have incredibly hard devices. So Paul know more about this than I do. But uh, we have hardened. We have hardened stuff. So like the spaceship itself, even though I'm looking at plasma creeping and crawling, all over that thing. We had no problems on the shuttle with electromagnetic interference. And so because it's really hardened hardened electronics. However, to upgrade the shuttle system in a low cost and very flexible way, we started flying personal computers to do the solutions that we needed to. So we go up with personal computer and like for the rendezvous the rendezvous how you catch up with Hubble telescope we take the PC, we tie into the, the orbiter data system. We suck the data that the shuttle is seeing into the PC. We run our solutions, and then we can take those solutions and we can put them in a command stream to run payloads and that kind of stuff. So we updated using the PC, but my goodness, whatever function you wanted to do, you had to have two PCs because they crashed all the time. Wow. So, you know, what Paul's talking about, the PCs crashed all the time. Now, that may be cosmic rays, so Paul know better than me what particular kind of uh, uh, strikes in plasma are causing the problem. But the PCs didn't last at all. So whatever function you're trying to run, you had to have two of them running that function because sure enough, you're going to lose one. And you quickly reboot, reboot that one and get it back up to speed before the second one goes under two. So that was really impressive. The difference between the standard PC and, and the hardened electronics. My God, talk about flying by the seat of your pants. So it was that volatile. I didn't realize that, sir. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And uh, you see it fun. You see it going through your head, too, you know. You're trying to go to sleep at night, and it's 4th of July in your, in your eyeballs. Do you all know about that? No, sir. No, sir. No, well, you're trying to go to sleep, and uh, it's 4th of July. It's a, it's a fireworks show. You're seeing a fireworks show when you're trying to go to sleep. And so you check your watch so that later on you will see where where you were over Earth, the South Atlantic anomaly. And all of this, is, of course, is where in the Earth's magnetic fields, you are trapping. The Earth's magnetic field is trapping all kinds of radiation. Well, the Hubble mission, we're flying through that field. So the magnetosphere is right there trapping all the stuff, and we fly directly through it. So we were taking a big hit. But um, So you're trying to go to sleep, and it's 4th of July. You're seeing all this fireworks go off. You check your watch, see where it is. It's South Atlantic Anomaly. The higher latitudes, of course, where the magnetosphere dips down, 
like a standard bar magnet. And man, it's just wild. And uh, so when we started reporting this, they got the volunteers to put their heads in accelerators. Not me. I got enough up there. You know the accelerators where they accelerate these particles? They got the volunteers to put their heads in there. And so they were trying to determine what caused these, these light flashes in this show. They thought it would be impinging, the radiation impinging on the retina or on the visual cortex. Right. The visual cortex is the visual part of the brain that sees things. So if you were to stimulate, you'll see things which aren't there. But they turned out, having shielded that head, those volunteers that put the head in acceleration, they found out it's in the liquid part of the eye. It's not the retina, it's not the visual part of the brain. It's the liquid part of the eye that's being lit up by this radiation. But it's impressive. Is the radiation over a long-term damaging to your eye, sir, and your body as well? Well, I don't think so, other than mental illness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And um... No, that was supposed to be a joke. Oh, sorry, sir. <laughs> you had me. You had me. Yeah, I fell into that. Oh, yeah. kidding. That's supposed to be a joke. Although people... People call me eccentric, you know. They do. They call me very eccentric. <laughs> I don't know why. On the other, on the other hand, Brent, you know, I've never aspired to, to the ordinary or being normal. It's not something I've aimed at trying to be normal. I probably couldn't get there anyway, but it's not something I ever aspired to. Talking about aspirations, what inspired you? To go into space? Why space? Now you're an accomplished surgeon. Well, you know. It, it it utilized everything I'd ever been. It utilized all my aviation. I was a very experienced pilot in my Marine Corps. I was a major in mathematics. I was uh, out at UCLA, and uh, the, I had the biggest computer in the world, IBM 709, vacuum tube processor. I operated that. I was a Fortran compiler and assembler. Wow. And um, then I was into physiology and medicine. So if you look at uh, when that job came along, scientist, astronaut, Plus, of course, it's exploration. So I was into exploration. Tyler, what inspired you to go into aerospace? Um, it's always been something that's just drive. So I, I think what inspired me was it kind of, kind of like what you were saying. The story was the interdisciplinary nature of it. It's just so many things coming together, and you really have to understand everything as it's a story. That really came. You know, I was really, a, you know, when I was three years old, really just found space really interesting and I remember buying kind of plastic model sets because I really just wanted to know how it was put together and how it worked and it was really more when I went into engineering that I figured out okay it's it's because I like all these things coming together and how it works and and how it's so many things you have to to keep track of and the more I learned about it and the more complicated it was the the more I found it cool but also it's just exploration you know getting out there and, and seeing new things so I I find that also about deep ocean is very interesting as well. You know, so it's it's not just, it's really the exploration. It's the kind of somewhere that's you know literally out of this world, I guess. Virtually, Paul, and your uh, inspiration for going into space. Uh, I mean, when you grow up, you're always trying to pretend to be an astronaut, right? You have like a fake football helmet that you spray paint silver, and you're you know you take the like, old pads and you put them on. You pretend like you go in the backyard like you're an astronaut walking around picking up lizards like you found something new and things like that. Um, but I remember uh, kind of, you know, getting away from that as you kind of grow older. And I, I remember when I was in high school, we took a class that um, 
kind of tried to get you prepared for later on in life. And one of the things I remember doing is they had this computer program that matched your interests. They, they asked you several questions. And over the course of these questions, um, it, it, it eventually matched like your personality interests with like potential jobs that would uh, like match. And um, one of the jobs was an aerospace engineer and I read about it and I couldn't believe, I don't know why it never hit me that people actually get to design and build rockets and do these things. And I was just like, oh my God, like that is uh, like, it's what I've been wanting to do for my entire life. So it just made sense. And so uh, that's kind of how I got into this type of work. I know also in Tyler's case, he followed astronauts very closely. Um, Story Musgrave, of course, one of them, and the original uh, Seven. Was that much the same case for you as well, Paul? Uh, yeah, big time on the uh, Apollo astronauts, mainly. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright, and we are speaking with a living legend. Story Musgrave is with us tonight. He has spent his whole life being an astronaut, a surgeon, and most importantly, inspiring people. Tyler Reed and Paul Tarantino are joining us from Stanford. Both are students in aerospace. Um, they're doing their PhDs, and they've asked some incredible questions so far. We're going to go back to Story right away because Story is a limited time. Um, he's on a schedule. And, and uh, I've got some kids, too. That's the important thing. How many kids do you have now, Story? i got seven kids. And so the oldest is 55, and the youngest is eight. And you have at least one cat. I have a cat and I have a dog. That's pretty They all sleep in the same bed, all the kids and wives and cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all pushing for body contact, and they're so spoiled. One body contact's not enough. They got to work their way in where they got a body contact on both sides. Oh, that's so sweet. That's just nature. It sure is. Are you a spiritual man, Story? Yeah, massively spiritual? spiritual. Yeah, that's who I am, 99%. That's what I is. And uh, that's what drives me. It's how I think. It's how I do. You know, the transcendent, the acknowledgement, there's something. There's something beyond us, you know. What do you think is out there beyond us? Hmm. <laughs> Dear me, <laughs> what? Uh, I don't know. Well, of course, uh, uh, the cosmos, you know, um, so I don't have a massive separation between, um, you know, my spirituality is, um, for me, the cosmos is uh, sacred, too, you know. Yes, the whole thing, all the creatures and the earth and uh, the heavens and now, the whole thing is kind of sacred to me, but um, we're never going to understand it because it's not within our capability to understand it. So that's fun, too. I like the fact that we can't. And you say, what are you talking about, Story? Well, I, I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't think that you can't teach a dog quantum mechanics. I, I'm not sure you can. I think the dog maybe is not designed to do quantum mechanics. A dog is a dog. It's nothing against dogs. It's, I'm not sure they can do quantum mechanics. Okay, so what I'm saying is, are there concepts that are beyond the constitution of the human being to understand, just like there's concepts that it is beyond the constitution of certain creatures to understand? 
So that's a little bit, that's the beyond, that's the transcendent that I'm kind of talking about. So, but, you know, the cosmos or God, you know, she is not going to undress for us. So we that's, are, she's, she's not going to undress for us. I like and that. So I like that a lot. It, it is beyond our, beyond our understanding. But see, for me now, and it gets yes, back sir. to our earliest conversation, for me, I like that. It's the adventure, it's the journey, it's the quest. And the fact I can't get there is a comforting thing to me. It's the journey that matters, not the destination. So you you have the faith and you, yes, sir, you have the faith and you go forward. You go forward not knowing. And that is real faith. And the fact you have the faith and you go forward, you know, based on, based on that faith, even though, you don't know, and you can't get to the destination. Has that faith helped you through moments of trepidation, perhaps when one of your scariest moments in space? No, I don't think it helps me in the scary moments. I'm too busy saving my tail. What's happened, <laughs> sir? Has no. something like that happened? I've been there. Space? Oh, yeah, I've been there. Really? Well, I've been in the air. I've been in the aerospace world now for over 60 years. I've been driving airplanes for over 60 years. Scariest moment? I don't, they weren't scary. I've been in the north of T-38 and had a double engine fire, but it wasn't scary. I did what I had to do. And so I did what I had to do. I did the checklist and uh, I used uh, all of my flying skills and all of my judgment and I got it back home. Checklist said I should have departed should have ejected if you have one fire one one fire confirmed and can't get it out i had two but anyway and so it's not fear it's uh those things raise you to the higher level of performance where you're really doing the best you can to save the machine and save your tail story you're a man who's seen the best of mankind and the worst of mankind what gets you down and i'm going to extend that question what pumps you up? Well, I think you answered my question. I think you, I think you answered the question too when you, uh, when you said it. And what pumps me up is, uh, is people striving, people that got a sense they're in the game and they're doing the best they can, and they continue to climb a mountain. Tomorrow, what mountain are you going to climb? They continue to add, add skills, and they're explorers. And I don't mean, I don't mean just. Uh, those kind. I mean, they just explore new things and they keep going forward. Uh, they raise the bar. Yeah, what hurts me the most, I think, is that I'd have to think about what raises what, what uh, the worst is when kids cannot live up to their potential. When mm -hmm. kids are not looked after. When when kids are you know constrained. When kids have a rough life. When kids have a miserable life or a diseased life or a trauma life. Uh, man, I, that's something I just can't stand that. I see kids. You've lived your life inspiring and in, and by inspiring, achieving at the same time. One of your quotes is, I came from an extraordinarily dysfunctional family full of abuse and alcoholism. It's hard to say what drives a three-year-old, because you were only three, but I think I had a sense that nature was my solace, and nature yeah. was a place in which there was beauty. That's right, because that was the, that was really the only sanity around. Man, I, it was. 
I said, man, this is one. I could use the F word. I won't. This is one. I'll use the N word. This is one messed up world, and I ain't getting it on me. I knew that at the age of three. But it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it'll be rough on your audience. That's okay. What would you say to uh, them? Because there's some people. I said my, my grandfather shot himself. My father shot himself. Mother starved herself. My brother shot himself. My son shot himself. My uncle took rat poison. Aunt drowned herself in the bathtub. I mean, you want me to keep going? What I'd like is, because there are many people listening right now that are going through something similar, maybe not to that depth. That's about as deep as you can get. I think I got the greatest string What suicides. Did you... But you know, the important thing is is that you you keep you keep going forward. Somehow, as a child, I understood this is you know it's not me, and I got to go forward. But the important thing in life is I don't wish any of those dramas on the poor people that had to live them. I don't don't wish it on them. I couldn't control any any of that. But it turns out all that stuff is my strength, not my weakness, mm. because my child took me through it. You see, my hero is my child. It took me to a point in life where I could, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that would fall my way. So the child that brought me, you know, with reasonable, you know, the expectations and the, and the sane individual think of pursuit of opportunities, that's, that's my hero. But I think the real lesson there is you've got to go forward and that what you went through back then is not an excuse. There are no excuses for today. You go forward from here. It's Because you went through that, it is not an excuse. I think that's perfect, sir. I'm going to give, I know you have to go, so we're going to wrap up, And but I'd like to give... Uh, both Tyler and Paul, an opportunity to ask one final question each, and I guess we'll start with Paul. Are you uh, guys... I think maybe we'll do one together. Sure, uh, please. Just for the sake of time. Um, uh, I, we were curious, Story, um, since you had such a long uh, kind of career at NASA, we were wondering which of your, uh, during your time there, which were your favorite astronauts to work with, and also which seemed more challenging? Now, which mission was more challenging? No, uh, we're thinking of like more personalities more than anything. If you <clears throat> comment, yeah, I, I probably won't, I won't go too far into the names. Uh, the public doesn't understand that we have the massive range of compatibility. They think somehow that we're selected for compatibility, and we are not. Mm. And so a given a, a given crew has uh, I have been I think on probably the most incompatible crew that ever existed, and I think I've been on a crew that was at least as compatible as any other. <clears throat> and so it gets down to compatibility. Now professionalism of getting the job done, uh, the same as two commercial pilots, uh, they may not see things alike. But they got to be professional and they got to work as a team and to fly that airplane to perfection. Well, you, you, you hope, you know, you professionally you will get the job done. 
But it is far easier, and it goes much smoother if you are a compatible crew. So we, but we have the same range of compatibility and incompatibility that other human beings on a given job have, so or in some social context. And so we are professionals, but we do have a, a wide range of uh, of compatibility. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Story was there one person in particular in your life, not only an astronaut or somebody you may have worked with that inspired you, kind of a mentor? Well, I've had a bunch of absolutely super, uh, super mentors. Freshman and medical student, when I took up neurophysiology, neurosurgical research at Don Perper, he was uh, he was dean at Einstein Medical School for 25 years. I knocked on that door and said, I'm ready to go to work. He took me in. When I was doing my clinical surgery, uh, under Dr. Ben Eisman, you know, as an intern resident, when I decided to pursue the space program and I told him I wouldn't be there at the end of the year, he asked me scrubbing on a case one day, I'm really going to miss your story, what you doing? I told him I'm going into space. He could have said I'm nuts, but instead he said, how can I help? And he's the same person that said, you know, if you'll give me three days a month, and during your astronaut career, I'll turn you into a trauma surgeon. So I did trauma surgery with him for 26 years. And during the, it was really funny. He was that kind of leader. He was a real expert on on treating a trauma out in the military in the field. But during our repair mission, uh, he sat in mission control and could teach my technique. And so uh, people in mission control thought that was really funny. <laughs> So there are people like that. Mom, uh, mom was uh, mom was mom, and so she was unconditional love, and so that matters. Did you play practical jokes on each other? Yeah, to some extent. I'm always trying to do what I can do up there to explore what the possibilities are. Yes, the restroom it looks like a it looks like a stall, same as down here. The doors doesn't go to the floor, and it doesn't go to the ceiling. And, and uh, I was used to use the restroom upside down, so I'd hook my toes to the top of the stall. It doesn't matter, you know, but it's it's really because it is a 1G orientation. It's got towels hanging there, and it's got a potty that's down there. I'm talking biologically down there because it has lights at the top, you know, like I've said. It's a, it's a 1G structure, and so you go in there like any other stall, but you can hook your legs on the top of the top of the door and uh, do things upside down. Now, if you turn yourself around, if you turn this all around, one of the most courageous things you can ever do in space is to flush the toilet when you're looking up at it. I talk about fear. That, I mean, that, that that is really tough to do that. But anyway, one day I flew with this this wonderful lady, KT Thornton. She's PhD in physics, great spacewalker, mom of three. She was just a great gal. But I flew with her on her first. I flew with her twice. But I flew with her on her first mission. Of course, as soon as you get into space, you you throw that orange escape suit off because you've been hours. And you head for the restroom. Well, I did it my usual way, so I just ran over there. She knew what's going on by the sound of the fans. She knows what 
which uh, method of going to the bathroom you're at, liquid or solid. But anyway, so she knows all about that. And she listens to the fans. She's trained, but she looks, just happens her peripheral vision to look over the stall, and she sees a bald head at the bottom. The bald head is at the bottom of the stall, and she can't figure that out, what's going on in there. So she asks her buddy, John Blah, and she points at the bald head at the bottom. And she says, what's going on over there? And John says, don't worry about it. It's him. It's, he does things like that. Just don't worry about it. She said, I missed something in the training. No, it's him. What's he doing? Well, is there only one way to find out? So he slings open the door. <laughs> so... Anyway, that's sort of a that's sort of a little humorous thing you were looking for. <laughs> that's hilarious, sir. And that really brings humanity into focus, doesn't it? We're all. Yeah, I got a, I got a hundred others for you. It's always the potty jokes, right? <laughs> it's, I, I got an eight-year-old. I got an eight-year-old little story. You know that age is just fun. They're into the Aww. potty jokes. <laughs> that's, cute. that's cute, sir. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, sir, and being an inspiration. Okay, I hope you can carry on all right without me. We've had a great time, though. Thank you so much, sir. And okay. All the very best to you and your family, and do try to stay uh, and, and, you know, fight for your spot in that bed tonight. Okay, and Tyler and Paul and Brent, yeah, meet me on LinkedIn if you want to stay in touch. Will do, sir. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, you. yeah. Thanks a lot, Tyler, Paul, Brent. Yeah. Take care, man. That was a great interview. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks, Dory. Bye. Bye. We're going to have to start to wrap up. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but I do want to thank you guys for coming on the show, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. We have to do this again, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you. We've been speaking with Tyler Reed and Paul Tarantino, both from Stanford Aerospace, and uh, we also spoke with Story Musgrave. Uh, six times in space, folks, a surgeon, just an incredible, incredible inspiration. www.nightfrightshow.com. There you will find links to all the things we discussed tonight. And please do click on them because everything is uh, right there in front of you. You're going to learn a lot uh, from all three websites from our guests tonight. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Good night, everybody. Witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. <laughs>